Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 94th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Mira Wilczek, president and CEO of Kogo Labs. Mira is also a senior partner at Link Ventures, which is the firm behind Kogo Labs. So did you know that one of the top incubators in the tech industry is actually located in Cambridge? And it is called Kogo Labs. Their track record for success is extraordinary. They've been launching companies for the past 12 years with an 80% success rate, which is unprecedented. Their data-driven approach and capital-efficient model provides the foundation and insights to identify problems to launch successful consumer businesses. A recent success story is EverQuote, which went public last year. Mira is an entrepreneur with a passion for building companies, and you should definitely keep an eye on Kogo Labs, as Mira and the team there have some very ambitious goals ahead. By the end of next year, they want to be supporting 30 concurrent companies, and yes, they are already on track to accomplish this goal. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the number one reason why startups fail, Mira's background, including a fun story from her days at MIT, plus her experience as an ethical hacker at IBM, and the company she founded, Red Panda Security, the secret sauce of Kogo Labs, how they identify opportunities for building companies, and why their model has been so successful, the details in terms of the operations and platform at Kogo Labs, plus some company examples, the criteria they use to determine when a company is ready to leave the nest, what the job of a board member is, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that we have a YouTube channel? We launched one earlier this year, and there is a rapidly growing library of content to check out. You'll find lots of great video snippets from our podcast, plus full interviews from our CEO briefing and inside series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to subscribe. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mira. Mira, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We've got a lot to talk about here. Obviously, uh, Kogo Labs is this amazing uh, incubator that has really, really uh, high level of success in terms of what you do and the portfolio of companies that you've already launched. But there's even larger plans that I'm super excited to talk to you about. And obviously, um, you know, you're you're leading the charge here as CEO of, of Kogo Labs. Uh, but there's something that um, that I I saw you on a on a, another um, uh, uh, YouTube like you were, I think you were at, at TEDx uh, you know talking about startups so um, you said something really interesting you said eighty percent of startups fail and there's that number one reason so what is the number one reason why startups fail yeah the number one reasons why why startups fail is not that uh, you know not that their product didn't work it's not that um, uh, it's not even the most uh, the thing that sort of gets the most uh, heat in the press, which is do you get, you assemble the wrong team. It's actually that they go after a problem uh, that the market doesn't value. Um, is that they go after the wrong opportunity, and um, and you know so I think that's that's something that we uh, that we at Kogo Labs really pay attention to, uh, and it's why our startups have an eighty percent success rate as opposed to an eighty percent failure rate. So do you, is it that the entrepreneurs, they kind of just have this grandiose idea and they're like, the world needs this, but they don't actually do the market research to identify that that's a problem that people actually care about? Uh, that's an interesting question and one that I certainly wrestle with. If I look at, uh, if I look at the mega successful uh, startups, sort of classic, uh, classic model startups, uh, one thing that's actually a very common theme is that people try to solve a problem that they themselves have encountered uh, or they try to solve a problem that they uh, have personal experience with they've had a client who's wrestled with it uh, in a you know in a previous life 
And what that means is that there are whole classes of problem areas that uh, don't get, uh, that uh, aren't addressed by sort of classic entrepreneurship because the people who feel those, you know, feel that pain most strongly are not in the target market, are not, are not somebody who is in a position to, um, are, are not somebody who's in a position to, uh, to actually uh, take a leap, get funding and, uh, and work, on, uh, work on solving a specific market need. Um, I'll give one example. Uh, so um, uh, uh, Kogo is Link's uh, incubator. Uh, Link Ventures, uh, one of our uh, company's job case is uh, essentially uh, a LinkedIn for people who are, uh, who are in the working class, who are uh, uh, looking for blue collar work. And there's this huge, uh, huge population. It's, you know, something like 80% of all Americans fall into, into their target market. Uh, and that's, that number is actually even higher overseas. And the reason um, why uh, a LinkedIn isn't a great solution for them is because the standard resume doesn't work for them. What they need is to develop a reputation that they can bring with them from job to job of punctuality, of courtesy, of reliability. And, um, and they need to know not whether the CEO of Walmart is, uh, is a good guy, but whether the manager of the specific uh, location in Tucson is going to be fair or, you know, or uh, cut their hours for no reason. And uh, uh, that's just one example of, of a target market that is enormous, that has a real problem, that needs to have, build up that credibility, that needs to develop that sort of professional referral network, that professional reputation, that uh, somebody who's graduating from Stanford uh, and trying to, you know, think of, you know, think of a startup uh, idea is going to gravitate towards how do I video message with my friends and not necessarily how does somebody who's trying to become a Lyft driver, uh, uh, you know, develop that professional reputation that they can carry with them from gig to gig to gig. That's a massive opportunity. Yeah. Well, let's rewind the clock a bit, a little bit. So where'd you grow up? Like, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> uh, let's see. I was a huge tomboy as a kid. Um, so I grew up in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I come from a family of academics. Uh, so I did move around a little bit as I was growing up. Um, was born in California, moved to Princeton when I was six um, with a brief stop over in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I have now returned. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, academic background was actually interesting in, in many ways. Uh, one of which is that as I was growing up, I kind of assumed that I myself would go into academia, that I would become a professor. Um, but when I ended up deciding to go to MIT um, and study computer science, one thing that I quickly realized was that I was more personally attracted to and rewarded by solving practical problems uh, and, uh, and uh, seeing the work that I did, um, seeing the work that I did actually affect people's lives uh, directly um, than I was in, uh, you know, identifying um, identifying a fundamental, uh, uh, you know, effect, a fundamental uh, phenomenon, and having to sort of see whether it was true or not through a glass darkly, you know, through experimentation and. Uh, and sort of long-term uh, research experiments. So, um, so that was really uh, that was really something that you know I had a very clear to me life path as I was um, as I was growing up, and I I, uh, I very strongly believed I was going in the direction of being somebody who's in the field of AI research. Um, but the more that I actually got exposure to um, to uh, projects where I would see 
people using something that I had built, uh, I became more and more interested in being a builder, more and more interested in putting together systems where I could, um, I could interact with the user community, where I could be, you know, I could be solving somebody's practical problem. Um, and MIT was actually a great school for exactly that. They're great at, uh, at helping students to partner with industry, at, uh, at helping, uh, helping students to um, uh, be creative with the projects they're working on and how, how what they're learning translates into an application. Um, I actually did a really fun project when I was just a freshman with the Flying Karamazov uh, juggling troupe. If you've ever heard of them, they're kind of like a, um, like a blue man group almost. They have this sort of marriage of juggling and uh, music and art. And, uh, and I built a virtual juggling system for them that let them, uh, that let them uh, juggle planets uh, and play volleyball with planets as part of their act. And what was funny about that project is that it, was kind of the precursor to um, it actually it was kind of the precursor to some technologies that turned into uh, to things that uh, got used in um, the connect if you remember them anyway VR and, and AR uh, technologies mm -hmm. but even more interestingly it actually was the first time I worked with somebody who later would be a co-founder of, uh, of my first startup which was a lyric semiconductor um, so uh, so without that uh, without that project and without that support from MIT on um, on getting undergraduates involved in research, involved in practical problems, uh, you know, interacting with uh, interacting with uh, the outside world, um, that uh, that meeting would have never happened, and uh, and my life might be very different today. And it, it seems like you were always like definitely building things, right? Because it was this like fun little thing that you built at MIT called the Destructionator. So, so oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> oh yeah, that was just a fun, that was just a fun Sunday afternoon. So I was, um, so I was, I uh, lived in a, a living community called the Women's Independent Living Group. Um, it was, uh, it was an old apartment building and we had about a third of the building and there were 40 women at a time. And we were responsible for the entire running of the house. Uh, so uh, I was um, at various times. I was the house manager. I was uh, the um, I was the treasurer. Um, I got exposure to a lot of different things that I wouldn't necessarily have uh, have other gotten otherwise gotten exposure to. But uh, the thing that I really enjoyed the most was being the house manager and uh, what that chiefly constituted was trying to do as much as possible personally without getting contractors involved because we were really really cheap. Um, I mean, we were really, really cheap because we didn't have much money, <laughs> but when it comes down to it, we were really, really cheap. So I did everything from like rewiring our phone systems to um, building cupboards to that were really, you know, they were genuinely like two by fours nailed together uh, to painting the entryway, which uh, the next house manager painted over within her first two weeks. Um, uh, that's because that is not my forte. But uh, by far the funnest thing was... Um, so we had a bunch of tools lying around, um, and uh, as you'd imagine, they're in better and worse shape. Um, and uh, among the things that we had lying around were about seven old saw blades that were kind of rusty and not really good at for cutting wood anymore. And we also had a couple of old engines lying around. Um, so we built uh, what is called the Destructinator, <laughs> and what that was was uh, sort of seven wheels of spinning death uh, interlocking. And uh, we just dropped stuff uh, into it, um, lots and lots of fruit. Uh, so we kind of invented Fruit Ninja, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> in real uh, life, not the not In the real life, exactly. Um, <laughs> very, very convincing uh, special effects. Um, definitely got sprayed all over. Um, 
the sounds were incredible and not at all like uh, like you hear on Fruit Ninja, uh, the game. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, that was re- that was really really fun. And I think that's one thing that I actually really loved about MIT is that there was a sort of a playfulness around building. I had a friend who built an el- a working elevator door to replace his dorm door. Uh, we uh, you know I'm sure you know I'm sure many people in your audience are familiar with the lithium drop, but we used to have a a a, 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 um, a silicon drop uh, every um, uh, every September where we would we would go up to the fifth floor of our building and we would just drop all of our old computers that we weren't using anymore into the alley behind our, our, you know, into the alley where the parking lot was. And, um, and, uh, you know, they'd make kind of a satisfying smash and, uh, and everyone would, you know, yell woohoo. And it was just, it was just, it was this very nice, playful culture that valued, um, that valued that play, that valued that hacking, that sort of hacking, uh, uh, interaction between fun and technology. Right. Like how are we going to get a car on top of the dome? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and they do. And they do. And they made me and the lights work. Yeah. It's incredible. So what did you do after you graduated from MIT? Uh, so the first thing I did was I was an ethical hacker for IBM. So my job was basically break into things before the real bad guys got a shot at them. Um, that was a lot of fun. As you can imagine, it was also incredibly good technical training because it gave me exposure to all kinds of technology stacks, all kinds of implementation choices that people were making both good and really bad. Um, uh, and the other thing that it did was it exposed me very early in my career at, um, to people who are relatively high up in the organization, uh, for fortune 500 companies. So, you know, among my clients were UPS, Century Bank, um, a couple of government agencies that I, I uh, can't necessarily talk about. And, um, and they cared, they cared about the the security vulnerabilities in their system. So I actually got to talk to them and in that context got exposure mostly through osmosis, but also to some degree, um, directly in to what mattered to them and to what they were thinking about at that very, very high level when they were thinking about uh, the next five years for their businesses. So that was, that was something that was uh, both foundational in terms of my ability to hack and make things and, and, and understand technology as well as, as directing me pretty early, I think, towards uh, wanting to understand the business side of things. Um, uh, You know, I, I spoke earlier about how I kind of went through this migration from thinking I wanted to be an academic to thinking I wanted to be um, almost a software developer, somebody who would build products, like a, a product developer, somebody who would build products. And it was really through uh, through that first gig that I, I started understanding, no, what I really want to understand is is companies. Uh, I want to be a, you know, I want to be a company builder. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, I think that's something that, uh, that that gig at IBM really helped to focus and clarify around my career direction. And was in that obviously career direction continued because then you went back to business school at Sloan. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so that's when I chose back to go back to Sloan. Um, well, that's when I chose go to go back to business school and I only really applied to, to uh, Sloan and, and uh, Stanford because I, you know, I, those two schools uh, in particular uh, are, um, are especially strong in entrepreneurship, obviously, um, and also are very supportive of um, sort of intertwining their business schools and um, and their engineering schools. And that's something that was really important to me because um, I thought uh, I thought I would be most successful where I could um, where my visibility into both the technology side of things and the business side of things would be you know would be actually useful to the success of the company. Um, and uh, and so I wanted to make sure that I was capitalizing on that. So I so I went to MIT. And, 
And Sloan, again, was very, very strong on practical work, um, on product-driven work, on making sure that uh, making sure that uh, business school was not about learning how accounting rules work, but was, uh, although you also do that, um, but was about, uh, first of all, developing your network, as, as many business schools are, but really getting hands-on experience when you have the credential to, you know, when you have the credential to say, I am a student uh, and uh, I'm here to help. Um, getting you, you know, getting you in the door of, of companies who are facing challenges and can really use your help. Um, so that was a really, uh, that was my theory going into Sloan and it really got borne out. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that my final semester at Sloan, I may have been taking one actual class and having all of my other credits come from independent studies. Um, and, uh, and, uh, they were enormously supportive of that. They, they really saw it as, um, they really saw it as uh, fun, as fundamentally good uh, for their uh, for their students to um, to let them shape, like to where they wanted to to let them sort of shape their own programming, and and I took advantage of that. And then after graduating from B school, so then you went to a company that ultimately led to an acquisition. So what was that company, and, and what did you do there? So that was Lyric Semiconductor, um, and I joined as the business person, um, <laughs> which uh, and you know, and I think I, I uh, and and I I joined them uh, through a setup via uh, by the venture mentoring service with someone who I already knew very well and had worked with uh, before, uh, Ben Pagoda, who uh, had been my mentor when back all the way back when I was 17 years old at the MIT Media Lab. Um, so he had, you know, he had invented sort of a fundamental circuit technology that was very uh, powerful at, uh, at performing calculations in the probability domain and um, had brought on a co-founder who was, uh, was a ploy 49 at um, Broadcom uh, to help with manufacturing and, uh, and analog circuit design. And, and, uh, and, you know, to round out the team, he really wanted somebody who had, uh, who could take on sales, BD, uh, marketing, uh, project management. And, uh, and that's where I came in. And did that, uh, that skill set come natural to you? Like sometimes, you know, when, when you have a computer science, electrical engineering background, the more of the business side isn't natural, but was that something that just you gravitated towards? That's a really, that's a really interesting question. I think, um, I think actually, I think the computer, I think computer science anyway, and really engineering systems design is very, very good training for designing processes. It's, um, it really helps you understand how, um, how systems should work, whether those systems are comprised of transistors or whether they're people. Um, the, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a lot more challenging to address when a person isn't working the way that you expected them to, or the way that you specify that they should versus when, you know, versus when a gear is, you know, needs to, uh, needs to be shaved down a little bit or, or whatever it may be. But, um, but I think, I think, understanding how systems are supposed to work and being able to zone it, you know, zoom in on what isn't working exactly as you, as you would want it to be is actually good both in the people management realm and also in the, um, also in the engineering realm. Um, I think partly because of that, I tend to be a very, uh, I tend to be a very fit oriented manager and hirer and developer of people where um, I um, I actually do believe that when you're interviewing somebody or when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to uh, bring somebody in to, to fill a certain role, 
you could actually find somebody absolutely fantastic who is absolutely not right for the role. Um, and, um, and it's semi heartbreaking because you know, somebody is going to be really successful somewhere else. But I actually see that as something where you're, um, you are setting them up to be successful somewhere else. Uh, and, um, and you're also making sure that you keep that slot open for somebody who's going to be really successful with you. So I think that's, that's something that, um, that, uh, is uh, sort of personally heartbreaking sometimes, but makes it a little bit, I think having an engineering background and having, having uh, sort of seen uh, machines go awry um, makes, it, makes, it, uh, makes it easier to be confident early in your career um, that you're making the right decision, that you're, that you're sort of curating talent effectively. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, obviously you, um, you know, it worked out because the company was acquired. Yes. And then, and then from there, you went off and, and started uh, your own company, Red Panda Security? Yes, I did. So, um, so <laughs> well, uh, Lyric was a fantastic outcome. We basically recapitulated the history of computer science and the probability domain. We started with literal fundamental logic gates like, like NAND gates, XOR gates, and, uh, and had to you know, move all the way through putting together arrays of gates, then programmable arrays of gates, then a fully functioning probability processor. And my job was basically to map practical applications to every stage of development. And the fact that we, you know, returned 12x to investors in, you know, three, three and a half years that I was part of the team is, uh, is kind of phenomenal. Um, but I had kind of gotten a taste for the startup life. And uh, Analog Devices is, a fan, is an amazing company. And I was really pleased to see our technology go into um, really wide release products. Uh, we were in a couple of iPhone models. Um, uh, but I was also had gotten a taste for the startup life, and I was interested in uh, sort of going back to the well on that. So, uh, so I struck off on my own. I got a I got some uh, DARPA funding to develop a um, develop a mobile application for them um, that was essentially a biometric sensor uh, that could understand whether or not the person who was using a mobile device was actually the owner of that device. And um, and uh, the company, so we did well on that on that contract. Uh, we delivered on time, under budget, uh, above spec. Um, I had also brought on a co-founder um, who I had worked with before at IBM to uh, to start thinking through how we would expand this product and release it into the wider market and uh, build a company around it. Um, but we ended up deciding to go our separate ways uh, after the DARPA contract was completed, um, partly because of exactly the 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 um, the that idea of, you know, is this the best fit regardless of the quality of, you know, regardless of the quality of the person, are you uh, working on building the same machine and are you, are you interlocking correctly as you try to, as you try to build? Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I think after, uh, after a few months of working together, it became very clear that we had different visions for the direction that the company wanted to go. I think we were both very ambitious about where we wanted our respective careers to go. So we ended up uh, deciding to go our separate ways. Um, and, um, and, uh, right around this time I was talking to, uh, Ted Chan, who's the CEO of Keradash, um, which is one of Link's portfolio companies, one of Kogo's supported companies. And, um, and one of my great friends from Sloan from business school. And, um, and he was basically telling me, uh, I don't know what you're doing right now, but you've got to check out what they're doing at Kogo labs. Cause you're a huge nerd they're a bunch of huge nerds. I think you would get along. And, uh, you know, after I thanked him for that comment, I, um, I went in and I, I, I met, uh, John Rowland, who's now our VP of venture development, uh, met, uh, Dave Blunden, who's uh, the founder of Kogo and, um, and, 
and uh, still a great mentor and still our chairman and great mentor of mine. Um, uh, and, uh, another gentleman, Jonathan Shapiro, who works at Everquote. And, uh, and, uh, they showed me their, the data that they were working with. Um, and it was, it was love at first data. I couldn't believe what they had access to. I couldn't believe what they were seeing and I couldn't believe the power of it. And they had only scratched the surface. So that was really something where, um, you know, as one, as one door is starting to close, you get visibility into a different door and uh, and you kind of fall in love with the opportunities. So so I agreed to come on uh, into Kogo as an entrepreneur in residence. And um, and the first thing that I wanted to do was just dive into um, dive into their data sets and see what see what I could see, see what I could identify. Originally my plan was to actually choose a company to build like a, you know, like a um, uh, like a CareDash or um, like a hop jump or uh, or like an Everquote. Um, but the more I dug through the data, the more that I um, uh, started basically uh, laying out a market map of everything that I thought we could do just within the consumer internet, the more I fell in love with the idea of building uh, not one company, but 30 companies and then 120 companies, I fell in love with building Kogo itself. So, uh, so that was, um, that was, you know, that, that developed over the course of a couple of years, but, uh, but eventually I laid it out for the link partnership and, uh, and they really bought into the vision. So, um, so that's, so that's when I, uh, went over to link as a partner and, uh, took on running, uh, running Coco as an incubator. And since then, everything has been, uh, going, um, up and to the right, which is fantastic. Uh, so, um, we flipped, uh, Kogo from being a cost center to, uh, being a profitable operation in and of itself. Uh, we've more than doubled the number of parallel incubation projects that we have at any given time. Uh, we are, uh, on track to, uh, 4X that again over the next two years. Um, and, um, and I'm really couldn't be more excited about the directory that the companies that we've been supporting that we have spun out in the past uh, are on. Caradash is now the third largest doctor review portal on the internet. Um, uh, we've got a company that's um, that's on track to spin out within uh, within a short amount of time that uh, has um, has very aggressive uh, goals to uh, to compete with um, Vice Media and. Uh, Morning Brew and the Skim, um, and uh, and it's uh, it's all systems. It's all systems go with them. I think we've got some really really exciting things uh, in the works, and um, and I couldn't be more excited to be part of the story and to uh, and to build up Boston as a you know as a center for entrepreneurship and as a creator of jobs and as a creator of companies. Well, I, I want to like kind of set the stage a little bit too here. So if, uh, if, you know, some you know, people that are listening, they're not familiar with Dave Blunden. So he's the founder of Link Ventures and Kogo Labs. Yep. And, uh, you know, so he, as an entrepreneur and investor and company builder is just has this amazing track record that is, you know, it would go toe to toe with pretty much anyone West coast, whatever coast doesn't matter. Um, so uh, you know, he was early employee at MicroStrategy, which was a company that, you know, was a high flyer in the, you know, internet boom. And then uh, started Data Saves. That was acquired by Vignette, which at the time was, you know, $500 million exit. Um, and then, you know, he's been, a, you know, angel investor and trip advisor, uh, car gurus, obviously uh, companies that went public. And then, you know, Coco Labs and Link Ventures. Uh, so, uh, you know, your portfolio companies, you know, Everquote recently went public. Yep. 
Um, you know, you talked about job case, which is a link ventures portfolio company. They just raised a hundred million in venture funding. Yep. Uh, it's, I mean, so if you go through and peel back the, you know, the layers of Kogo labs and link ventures, it's a ridiculous track record. So why is, what is, you know, you talked about, you know, the, the number one reasons why startups fail. Yeah. So why is Kogo lab so consistently successful with their track record? Yeah, I really think it's because we're, I think it's because we trust the data above our own judgment. Uh, I think that's, I think that really is what it fundamentally comes down to. We, um, so, you know, so, so, you know, we, we collect information on what's going on on the internet, what's succeeding, what's failing, what's moving, what's changing, uh, why, you know, how it's changing. And, um, and. How does that work? You, do you all of a sudden have an idea like, you know what, uh, you know, doctors and, you know, reviewing doctors, like how do you decide, like how are we going to start tracking data as it relates to consumer interest and uh, doctor reviews? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, so I think we have access to a lot of things that, uh, that people have access to off the shelf. We also have our own proprietary data panels that we've developed that give us deep insight into what consumers are doing on the internet. Um, so through these opt-in panels, people tell us, um, you know, what their Google searches are, uh, where they're landing, what ads they're clicking on, um, what, uh, um, you know, how they're navigating through various sites. And that gives us, that gives us the ability to, it's, you know, we anonymize all their data um, uh, so that we don't, you know, accidentally trip over PII or anything. But that gives us real-time visibility into uh, what business partnerships are active and what the balance of traffic being sent in one direction versus another. Uh, that gives us real-time visibility into what, um, what different, uh, what classes of competitors uh, uh, sort of sign-up funnels look like and what's working well and what's not working well. That gives us real-time visibility into people's uh, A-B tests where they're trying two different things uh, and we can see how those A-B tests resolve uh, without having to think of them or run them ourselves. And that, you know, that really is an immensely powerful tool for understanding how to, um, how to run a business uh, once, you know, once we started seeding it and collecting uh, and, uh, you know, collecting the team and, uh, and working towards a business outcome. Um, and then, you know, as far as, as far as how we identify problems that we want to go after in the first place, um, one of the most powerful things that we, that we look at is, uh, is consumer intent, what they're interested in and what they're not finding, what they're looking for again later, what they're looking for clicking on 20 search results and then giving up frustrated, uh, you know, and, and not, not having their, their need met. Um, and that's really how we identify mass amounts of consumers who, um, who want something and they're not having their needs addressed. Um, so, uh, so when we see that, even if it's something, you know, unsexy or something that uh, we don't necessarily personally understand why it is that somebody wants this thing or um, how it is that we could monetize that thing. When we, but when we see that unmet need, that's the cue that somebody cares about this thing. And from there, the business model you know, will follow. Um, but that's really how we identify um, what society is missing, what the economy is missing and, uh, and what we go after. And it's also like a, like shared knowledge, right? So you learn from different companies that you've built and there's like this almost like shared playbook of best yeah. practices on how to build a company. Yeah, that's right. So once we've identified the actual market opportunity that we're going after, the, the actual product, the actual service that we're going to build um, and offer to people, we have shared playbooks uh, and shared resources uh, that we use to support, especially the young, you know, burgeoning companies um, from day one, because there's really no reason that 
a, you know, a four person team should have to figure out how RTB bidding works. Uh, they should really be focused on, um, on, you know, getting the right consumer to visit their website and sign up for their thing. Um, and if they can do that, they'll, you know, they'll be able to do it, um, cost effectively. There's no reason why a four person startup should be, um, figuring out how to strike a 10 year lease with, you know, <laughs> with, uh, right. right. There's no reason why, you know, a four person startup should be, should be, you know, should be spending time negotiating its health benefit. Like, like there are a lot of things that are in common across basically any company any company class that you could name. And there are a lot of, a lot more things even that are in common across any consumer internet company that you could name that it doesn't make sense to step into. It doesn't make sense to pay for um, when you're very young, when you're proving out your business model, when the, you know, the point of the stage of evolution uh, of your actual business is to figure out whether you've got something or whether you don't have something. There's, and, uh, you know, I think that's something that has really enabled uh, Link and Kogo to be immensely capital efficient is that we don't have to, you know, we don't have to give somebody, you know, $5 million just to get to the point of, you know, can these guys, you know, get up and roll into work every morning and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, run some SEM campaigns. Uh, that's not something that should take $5 million to figure out. That's something that should take like no money. to figure out. That's something that should take a hundred thousand dollars to figure out. And, um, and so that's really Kogo Labs' mission as an incubator is to collect everything that could possibly help a consumer internet entrepreneur be successful, everything that could help somebody who's hardworking, smart, uh, diligent, and ambitious to, uh, to succeed. And if it's not specific to travel or if it's not specific to doctor reviews or if it's not specific to, um, you know, to uh, auto insurance, then there's no reason why a company of one person, four people, even 15 people should be worried about that thing. We should be, we should be providing them the training wheels as they're getting going where their whole mission in life is figuring out whether an auto insurance marketplace is needed and will work. Their whole mission in life is figuring out whether a doctor review portal is needed and will work in the market. Um, and, uh, and so that helps us, um, that helps us really hone in on, on the ideas that have some legs uh, very early and with really minimal investment. Now, it's also different from an accelerator like a Y Combinator, Techstars, where entrepreneurs, they need an idea to apply and hopefully, you know, go through their program and hopefully raise funding after that. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur who's bright and driven and want to create companies, you could go to Kogo Labs and like you were an EIR and ultimately yeah. hopefully run a company or be part of a company. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, so, you know, people come in and, uh, you know, depending on, depending on the, you know, the avenue by which they come in, they may, you know, they may work on a project to expand the platform to, you know, to make the platform stronger and help out all future entrepreneurs, or they might get right to work on, you know, on a specific vertical that we want to go after or a specific product or service that we want to go after. And, um, and, you know, just start trying to find the right people and find the right offering to, ma to match the market need. And, um, and you're right, that's a very different model than sort of the classic come in with a PowerPoint, come in with uh, sort of a proof of concept and, uh, you know, a paper business plan. What we're looking for is, um, is somebody who can run an operation, who can build something, uh, who can, um, you know, who can, who can develop a company, um, but not necessarily somebody who had, who had a great initial flash of inspiration, um, somebody, who, somebody who's going to be very responsive to what the market is actually telling them. And what is the current scale? You might have touched upon this a little bit already, but like, yeah. like how many companies are under the Coco Labs umbrella? 
um, you know, how quickly do you launch new companies? Like, like what's, what's the plan moving forward to? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we've been, so throughout our history, uh, you know, so we were founded about 12 years ago and throughout our history, we've probably launched on average one to two companies a year. Um, again, around 80% success rate. Um, and uh, 84% IRR over that entire period. Um, and, uh, and that's been, obviously that's very, um, rewarding to, you know, to see that track record and, um, and it's gratifying to think that, you know, we did it, we're making it work, but, um, but we really have ambitions to dramatically, um, dramatically scale that, uh, over the next couple of years. So, um, you know, so, uh, we're trying to fill the pipeline without sacrificing quality. Um, and at the moment, so depending on how you count, there are between, um, there are between eight and 10, probably, probably eight, eight or nine um, companies that we're currently uh, incubating and supporting uh, within the incubator. Um, and uh, the goal is to get to 30 concurrent companies uh, by the end of next year um, and expand from there. Um, so, so far that's looking promising, um, but, uh, but obviously there's a long road to hoe between, uh, between here and uh, when we're, we're trying to get to, and there's no reason why 30 should be the end of the line. So, um, so really the next, Really, the next uh, you know the next six months is all about making sure that the platform is ready and that we're prepared for scale. The next six months is all about recruiting and you know staffing into the opportunities that we see. And the next six months after that is all about it's all about uh, it's all about achieving that scale. It's all about um, making sure that we're building people up, that we're supporting them effectively, that we're seeing the same kinds of returns, the same kind of success rate as uh, as we have historically at a much larger scale. And how many employees actually work for Kogo Labs? And like, what's the plan ahead as far as hiring. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, so we've got about 140 people uh, who are employees of Kogo Labs. Of those, almost exactly 100 as of today are, uh, you know, what we call platform uh, people or mission control, um, which is really people who are working on products that are not intended to spin out of the incubator. Um, they're working on making sure that, uh, you know, making sure that our databases are up and that there were, you know, importing new data sources. There are HR people, um, they're ad operations people, um, there's account management, there's compliance, which is big. Um, there's design, uh, web design and, uh, and, uh, developers. Um, and then there's also, um, about 40 people who are working on, um, incubating projects. So projects that are intended to, uh, become companies of their own, um, assuming that they actually prove out their business model, which is not a minor bar to, to clear. Um, uh, so they're working on projects that are intended to spin out. Um, so of those 40, uh, about 20 of them are working on a project that is probably going to spin out, uh, pretty imminently. Um, so, uh, so that'll, that'll go down in, uh, in just a few, uh, and not that long now, um, and have to be replenished with, uh, with another wave of companies, another wave of entrepreneurs. And at what point do you finally, like, does a company graduate that they, you know, move on from, from the incubator? Yeah. So that's really, uh, so, uh, the graduation criteria is a three pronged test. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> Fitting. Uh, so, you know, seriously, this is, this is, um, an incubator designed by and run by engineers. So it's, it shouldn't be surprising that it's very quantitative. So we have a three pronged test of, uh, of whether you're doing well on our five stage playbook, um, or, you know, of, uh, sort of whether, whether you're whether to, uh, to, um, uh, leave the nest, I guess. Uh, so one is that you have demonstrated cohesion and hiring and, you know, managed to targets, managed to budget budgets um, for a period of at least a year. Um, so, you know, you've established credibility as not as sort of a operational team. 
Uh, one is that you have proven your uh, business thesis to the degree that you are running uh, on a self-sustaining basis. So you are, um, so you're actually, we actually expect groups to be profitable by the time that they spin out of the incubator. Um, and the other is that they have, uh, that they have uh, documented and, um, and, uh, and pitched a uh, credible business plan that gets them from where they are to, uh, to IPO scale. Um, so something that's an equitable business. And that, that's the goal. Like this is like, we're building IPO scale companies. Yes. These- yeah, that is explicitly the goal. Uh, so, you know, we, so both our CEOs and our CFOs, we explicitly draw them aside and, and not too threatening, but maybe like appropriately threatening a manner. Uh, we ask them to swear up and down that they will IPO this company or they will die trying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but you know, in all, uh, in all seriousness, um, the, the people that we work with are, um, amazing and, uh, and it's really up to us as a platform to make them successful. So, um, so we take that responsibility very seriously. They're ambitious. They, they want to make it happen and we want to make it happen, uh, with them and for them. So, um, so it's really important to us that everybody's on the same page and the people that we're asking to sign up to be part of one of those companies, uh, are, you know, are going along for a ride that's worth taking that, you know, that they're, that they're, uh, that they're going in a direction, uh, with a company that they can expect to do great things for their pocketbooks, but also for their careers and for their, and their, for their development. And once they do leave the nest, like uh, how, how are they set up as far as, um, do they go on to raise funding from other institutional investors or, you know, like what's the expectation then? Yeah. So the, um, the expectation is, uh, so because they are, um, cash flow positive at the time that they spin out, uh, the expectation is that they will raise outside capital if, and only if they need it for a growth initiative or for, you know, or for a specific, um, a specific corporate event. So often, I mean, in fact, if you, you can look in, um, Everquotes S1 and see the funding history, often they'll raise very minimal capital, um, uh, until they're really ready for that pre-IPO push. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's something that has been, I mean, that's something that has been, um, uh, both a blessing and a curse because, because our execs don't necessarily need to chase funding all the time. Um, they can be much more uh, sort of operationally biased, uh, and then, uh, and then, you know, but then often they're making their first pitches to investors when they're already making a hundred million in revenue. They're doing to other people, which is, uh, which is an odd time to have that be sort of your first initiation. That said, you know, when you're going around with that kind of story, it's, it, the, it's, uh, people aren't going to necessarily judge you on style so much as the substance of what you've done, which is incredibly impressive. But that's another, I think, key differentiator because I just, you know, the fundraising process is so time intensive and exhausting. And as soon as you raise capital, it's like, okay, I can breathe for six months. Now I got to start talking to investors again, hopefully to close my next round in, you know, 12 months or something. Yeah, no. And I can tell you as a a former CEO and as a former, uh, you know, as a former head of BD who is in charge of fundraising, that is a huge time suck. And when, you know, when you're trying to really build a business, as a CEO or as any exec, you really have to make conscious decisions about your time allocation between, uh, between talking to investors about what you would like to do and actually doing those things. <laughs> and that's one thing that I, that I really, um, I really value about our model is that we, especially early in the history of the company, we really bias towards letting our entrepreneurs spend more time on doing the things and making the things happen and building the teams that are going to, you know, are going to help them make things happen and less time, 
you know, less time taking speculative meetings, you know, taking a hundred meetings in order to get five investors, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's much more, uh, it enables people to, to allocate their time much more towards, uh, towards making things happen and, uh, and away from talking about making things happen. Now you're also on the, uh, the board at, uh, Everquote, Caradash, yep. Hopjump. So what do you think the job of a board member is? Oh gosh. Um, well, I think there are a few different, I think there are a few different ways that, uh, that boards can add value. One is, uh, an outside perspective, a, uh, you know, a, um, a, an outside pair of eyes who's not, uh, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid all the time, uh, not in the weeds of, of what's going on in the internals of the business, um, who can make connections with, uh, you know, make connections for the company who can help. Uh, deal with problems that they've had experience with in other contexts, um, identify opportunities that they come into contact with that are uh, sort of from uh, sort of not necessarily obvious to somebody who's entrenched in a given industry or entrenched in a given marketplace. Um, and, uh, and then of course there's governance, right? So there's, you know, there are certainly, um, there are certainly scenarios where it makes sense to have, to sort of separate the, um, separate the, uh, the um, the management team from responsibility uh, for you know certain classes of decision. So uh, so I think they're they're uh, the, the the board is really sort of the steward of uh, responsibility for uh, for making sure that that um, that uh, the management team is uh, is set up to be uh, to be effective and um, and that uh, and that obviously they're held accountable. Um, you know, uh, I think where I found it most rewarding to be a board member, especially for early stage companies, is uh, is in helping is in helping to uh, make introductions, helping to uh, uh, help people institute processes where you know the same thing that works when you're 10 people is not going to work when you're 50 people is not going to work when you're 100 people. Um, helping people understand how to um, how to manage teams through those various stages of growth and and put in place things that are going to in, in place uh, modes of interacting with their, with their people that are going to um, be lightweight, but effective. Um, and, uh, uh, and sort of helping people, helping people sort of build their, uh, build their companies as they go through very sort of distinctive uh, operational phases of life. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I think a board can really pitch in on is, um, is helping out, with uh, with executive recruiting, executive closing, and executive vetting, uh, when you get to the sort of when you get to uh, C level slots in a company that's of any significance, you really want some. You know, you really are going to want people who can um, interrogate um, people's credentials, interrogate fit effectively, um, uh, get side references. You know, get information about um, about people. Uh, from references that they didn't necessarily provide directly. And that's, that's another area where, where the board can really pitch in. Now, who do you count on for advice? Like who's been a mentor for you or like, who do you, you know, go to when you don't know how to handle something? Well, it's interesting. So, uh, so I've got a few people um, and some of them report to me, uh, but, but, and people I think find that counterintuitive, but, uh, but I found it, I find it incredibly uh, intuitive. So I don't know what people are thinking who are not me, but, um, but, uh, but there are many people who I go to for advice and it's really around, uh, different areas that, that, uh, that, um, 
that, uh, you know, that, that I'll consult with different people, you know, so I think as far as, as far as strategic direction, and as far as, um, as far as thinking about, uh, thinking about the long term, um, I, I talked to Dave London, who you mentioned earlier, um, almost every day, um, and, you know, multiple hours a week. And, uh, and we really, uh, make sure that we're on the same page as we're trying to build, build something together. And, uh, as we're trying to scale our ambition, um, when I'm, when I'm thinking about sort of interpersonal management and how to, uh, set people up to be successful and then get out of their way. Uh, I talked to a gentleman named John McGee, who reports to me when I'm, talking, uh, who, uh, you know, has run, ran uh, sales and operations at Evernote before he uh, joined the Kogo team. When I'm thinking about how to tell the Kogo story, I go to John Warner, uh, who, um, is, uh, runs TEDx Speak and Street and, um, has been, uh, you know, has been sort of the MIT Media Lab's, uh, outward face, uh, for many years and really understands how to, um, how to explain a vision, um, and explain why something is important. Um, when I'm thinking about a tricky piece of analysis or a tricky piece of math, uh, I go to Rob Fisher, who's our VP of analytics. There's, you know, there's a collection of people and, uh, you know, I think, and then there's, um, uh, and then there are people sort of on the more personal side. If I'm, you know, if I'm trying to think through, um, uh, if I'm trying to think through sort of fundamental life questions, uh, I still go to my dad. Um, he's, uh, He's uh, uh, obviously somebody who's been very important in my life and, and somebody who, uh, you know, we talked about what makes a board member effective. He's kind of a board member for my life. He, he really has an orthogonal viewpoint, which is incredibly important when you're making those sort of longer term decisions. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and obviously my husband and obviously my mom and my sister. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's, um, there's a sort of concept of having a team you or a team, you know, like, uh, somebody who, uh, a collection of people, uh, where you don't have you. And I, I think this is really important where, uh, you assemble people over the course of your life who you are, who are going to be important to you, who are going to help you and who are going to be, um, effective allies of yours for, for the long haul. And they're going to be allies in very different areas. They're going to be people who you, you know, who you talk to about very distinct, um, very distinct parts of the whole picture that you're trying to put together for yourself. Um, but, uh, but, but for me, it is all about assembling that team of assembling that collection of people who can sort of cover the whole picture. Now, one of the things that uh, Boston has this history for is, oh, you can't build consumer companies yet. This whole conversation we're talking about Kogo Labs building out these consumer companies at IPO yeah. scale. Yeah, is that stigma still around? Like, I mean, do you, do you think? Like, I, I don't think so. But I think I the stigma is still there, but it's getting less and less credible to me because so we so we've got the Kogo Labs companies, we've got multiple multi hundred million dollar uh, valued companies, and hopefully more to come, and hopefully multiple building billion dollar valued companies uh, uh, soon. Um, not to mention, we have TripAdvisor, we have Cargurus, we have Wayfair, we have we have a collection of success stories here that uh, we should get more credit for, in my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, and and then by the way, another sign of success is that we're starting to get the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Twitters moving in and trying to you know trying to leech off the talent that's been developed in the homegrown companies. Um, that's that's one metric of success, I guess. But um, but I think uh, I think one thing that we I think one thing that is um, 
that is working in our favor is that we have all of these, we have a bunch of success stories in the consumer internet and that talent is starting to, that talent, that uh, founder level talent or that um, really senior level talent is starting to come around for their second go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think is really going to kickstart a uh, parallelization of tech entrepreneurship in, in the Boston area is, you know, as somebody who's been trained at Amazon, who's been trained at Wayfair, who's been trained at TripAdvisor, who's been trained, uh, God forbid anyone ever leaves JobCase or ever quote, but, you know, (laughs) you know, maybe if they come back to Kogo, I'll forgive them. But, uh, you know, somebody who, who has been through once and is really looking for a signature achievement is really looking for a big win. Um, that talent pool is starting to become significant and is starting to, uh, start thinking about what their, what their life headline is going to be, you know, what, what company are they going to have been the founder of? What thing are they going to have made successful? And uh, so I think that's, I think that's going to be a strong uh, uh, tailwind for, for the Boston entrepreneurship community. Yeah. No, I think it's time to put that to rest. I mean, it just, I mean, simply safe pill pack. I mean, you know, care.com is still publicly traded. I mean, I could go on and on and there's not enough time in this show to keep doing that. But uh, (laughs) so what do you like to do outside of work? Uh, let's see. So I, um, it's very nerdy. So, uh, excuse me, excuse me in advance, but, um, I read a lot of science fiction. Uh, I write some too, um, not for publication. I have a one and a half year old. Um, so, uh, lots of, um, you know, pointing at things and making animal sounds uh, at the moment. Um, uh, but he's, you know, he's starting to toddle around. So we're starting to, you know, do little hikes and stuff around the Concord area, which is, uh, which is where I live. Um, and, uh, and, um, and yeah, I mean, I think, um, uh, the other, I think, uh, the, the, um, the non sort of hobby level stuff that I do is, uh, I'm very involved in, um, in making science education available, uh, to communities that don't necessarily otherwise have access to it. So I'm on the advisor board of, uh, Sci-Hub over at ASU. I work at the Clubes de Ciencia, which run, um, uh, hands-on uh, projects with uh, high schoolers around Latin America and are just starting to expand into the United States. So I'm helping them do that and I'm helping them um, uh, create those hands-on projects um, that, uh, that, um, that, for, uh, that people are pitching in on. And, uh, and that, sort of, that sort of class of activity around making um, technical training, scientific knowledge, and um, opportunities for, uh, for clever people to become successful and realize their full potential is sort of my personal mission uh, and, uh, and kind of where I try to direct my time. So fast forward a bit, uh, your son, he asked you the question, mom, I want to go to MIT. What are you <laughs> going to tell him? How do you get into MIT? Uh, well, first you should try to get a scholarship because but uh how do you get into MIT oh my god I don't know if I would get into MIT anymore I have to say uh but I think one thing that's actually really cool about MIT is that they look out for weirdos um and uh, I think that's kind of a cool thing and I think that's actually one reason why I really enjoyed it they're you know they're they're pretty needs blind in their admission process and um I think that helps them to develop and uh, support a pretty diverse community um which is just pretty cool if you wanted to get into MIT, I would say do something weird, uh, especially if it's hands-on and weird. Um, I'm pretty sure that my essay was about uh, how I dissected a fish that was dead in like 
rolled up on the and washed up on the beach as opposed to you know actually actually uh, you know. Uh, you know, dissecting an earthworm that's been nicely formaldehyded and prepared for you or anything like that. Um, so I, I have no idea whether that helped my application or hurt my application, but that's, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that that's what, uh, that's the only personal thing that MIT knew about me coming in. Um, so yeah, I mean, get good grades, uh, uh, be a credible person, but also be a little bit weird, be a little bit weird, uh, try stuff, play with stuff, break stuff, Put it back together if it works the same as it did before that's great if it works differently than it did before that's probably even better mm -hmm. um and uh and you, then you'll certainly be a culture fit for mit whether you end up going there or not that's awesome well mira thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and obviously all the amazing things going on at kogo labs obviously kogo labs is hiring so if you are interested in checking out opportunities at kogo labs you can visit their biz page on venture Fizz or just go direct to their uh, career site Thanks. Well, thanks again for your time. It was great chatting. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.